0: and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today, we're off to the country of Wales to take a look at a new project surrounding a very important piece of national mythology. But first... If you're listening to this episode around the time that it comes out, then don't forget that the next in our popular Folklore Podcast Lectures series is this coming Saturday, October 17th, at 8pm UK time. Presented online, guest lecturer Howard David Ingham, the author of The Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror, will be giving a brand new talk on themes surrounding pagan village communities in folk horror cinema. Expect new takes on old favourites, such as The Wicker Man and *Midsummer*, but also some much more unusual pieces. This talk has never been presented before, so this is a chance to be at the premiere and ask questions to the speaker live after the presentation. Tickets are booking now from bit.ly slash tfplectures. And don't forget if you're a Patreon supporter of the Folklore Podcast, then you get a discount on your tickets. Coming to prominence in the mid-19th century, when a set of translations was published by Lady Charlotte Guest, under the title that we now know it by. The Mabinogion is a collection of culturally important tales of Welsh mythology, dating back at least to the 11th century or before. A massively influential work, the Mabinogion has given rise to tales of Merlin and King Arthur, amongst others, and through its four branches, it deals with important themes such as loyalty, love and redemption. The stories are set in magical landscapes of giants and heroes, but in their usual form, they're quite complex in places and not easily accessible by younger children. But that may be about to change, thanks to a new project to produce a dual English-Welsh language retelling of the Mabinogion, especially for children. This is a really important project, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to discuss it further with some of those involved recently. A number of well-known authors are lined up to take part, including previous podcast guest Sophie Anderson. But the project is being driven by three children's writers, P.G. Bell, Matt Brown, and the Welsh children's laureate Eloise Williams. They all joined me to discuss... The Mab. Peter, Matt, Eloise, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you. you. It's great to have you here. Uh, I'd like to first, if I may, just go round the table, the virtual table, as it were, and just get you all to talk a little bit about yourselves uh, so that people can get an idea about uh, who you are, what you do um, and how you work with this very broad topic of folklore which we'll try and narrow down a little bit later on. So let's go ladies first of course. Uh, Eloise, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs>
1: Hi, um, I'm uh, I'm a children's author, I'm also the uh, Children's Laureate for Wales so I uh, write books for children, I also do a lot of work with young people Um Uh, encouraging them to be creative and use their own stories their own words to tell stories and to believe that they're part of the literature landscape of Wales I think they're the most important part actually so I try to convince them of that regardless of grammar or punctuation or any of those silly things.
0: Can you just explain uh, for people outside of the UK uh, what the role of the children's laureate is within literature?
1: Yeah, it's just to highlight the importance of literature um, for children in Wales and also the importance of young people creating literature. Thank you.
0: And, and how, how did you become interested in, in folklore and how do you
1: work with it in, in your own writing? Um, I actually didn't think I was that interested in folklore um, until I started looking at the Mabinogion and further listened to your podcast. And then I realised that actually all of my books contain Folklore, ghosts, witches, legends, superstitions. I'm obsessed with superstitions. Um so I think I'd had a uh a, a skewed view of what folklore was, maybe, um, or an incorrect view. So yeah, very influenced by yeah. it without even knowing. <laughs> Excellent. There's no going back now.
0: That's it. You're on you're on the path and, and... Court, that's it. Matt, you are the co-editor of the book about which we will be talking in a moment, along with Eloise. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, my name is Matt Brown, and I am a children's author, Um, uh, insofar as I've written uh, seven books for children, I suppose. Uh, Before I started being published, I was a radio and TV presenter and a radio and TV producer, um, and, uh, but I've always, always throughout my life have written things. Um, often in my work, it meant I wrote things like sketches or, um, you know, devised stupid games to play on the radio and things like that. But I, I've always written stories as well. Sort of, um, coinciding with that. I've got a drawer full of rejection letters from agents, <laughs> um, over the last sort of 20 years of trying to get things away. In fact i one of the best um letters I ever received was from a, um a an agent who said that in fact it was an agent sorry, it was a publisher I'd sent them something and they said that it was the worst thing they'd ever read and um <laughs> I sort of took that as a bit of a challenge um so 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 that's sort of what like in terms of my my sort of working life what i've done um uh but I suppose in terms of like folklore, I suppose a little bit like Eloise, folklore for me has always been something I think that has just sort of pervaded my life in probably in that sort of an unconscious way. I mean, I've always been... Fascinated, I think as a, as a teenager, I was really interested in sort of Victorian folklore, I suppose, but I didn't think it was that. I just thought it was like interesting stories about, you know, like spring Jack and, um, and even, I suppose like the Ripper and stuff like that, that I thought was like really interesting and, you know, I got excited about. Um, plus I was then also interested in um, horror films. I've, I've always had a big penchant for horror films, which again, I suppose touch on a lot of, uh, different types of European folklore, like vampires and witches, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, funnily enough, I've just in lockdown I wrote a story, which is essentially is a sort of a comic monster story, incorporating like loads of different um, uh, bits of monster folklore from around the world. So I suppose like monsters and Victorian Gothic were sort of my touchstones as far as, as folklore went. I wasn't much of a one for Tolkien or, or, or anything like that. But again, like Eloise, since um, since I started thinking about the Mabinogion, I have become much more sort of plugged into um, and interested in in, I suppose, that sort of sense of, you know, it's, It almost was like the alternative history of Britain, sometimes folklore, and I really like that. So I suppose that's, that's where my sort of interest in folklore lies.
0: Excellent. And finally, Peter, you hang around quite a bit on the folklore-related areas of Twitter, don't you? Uh, what's your interest in, and what do you do? Uh,
3: I do, yes. I, um, uh, well, first of all, to introduce myself, uh, my name's Peter Bell um, and I write as P.G. Bell. Um, and I've written a series of children's fantasy adventure stories for Usborne called The Train to Impossible Places um, Adventures, which uh, it's a sort of world, multi-world spanning, you know, high-speed adventure mystery series. Um, and I crib from all sorts of different bits of folklore and mythology and pop culture and things to, to populate these these various worlds. Uh, but no, I've, I've always been interested in in folklore. I think I came to it very very early because I can remember when I was five or six being fascinated by the tale of the hairy hands of Dartmoor. Um, for those that don't know is just like a, the weirdest possible folklore monster. It's just a pair of big hairy disembodied hands that will Brilliant. lunge out of the night and, and attack you when you're when you're driving or walking down yeah, particular roads or lanes in Dartmoor. Um, yeah, tales of, of the black dogs. Yeah, it's a black shuck and padfoot and things, which is how I, um, originally discovered um yeah, this this podcast as well. Um, so I've been listening for quite a few years now, since series it's a series one, I think. Excellent. Um, so yeah, even though uh, folklore and mythology don't, uh, I don't feed them in, sort of uncut as it were, in, into my work. There's there's definitely influences in there, and I and I, I pick my favourite bits and throw them into the mix.
0: They do have an influence, don't they, on so, on so many um, authors writing either directly or indirectly, um, including some of the other authors who are contributing to the book, uh, which we are about to talk about too.
2: Mm. Um, it's a funny story, I was just just thinking as Peter was talking about the ha- hair, the hairy hands of Dartmoor. Yeah, <laughs> there's a one of my favourite bits in the Mabinogion is a, is, a, is is part of uh, the first branch where a mysterious claw starts stealing you're taking people away and it's it's funny how the more I suppose that you 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 get into even just a specific aspect of folklore you realize how sort of multi-dimensionally connected all of these stories are which I think is a really awesome uh, you know aspect to it all
0: it's one of the biggest areas of fascination I think uh, this recurrence of of motifs and symbols and themes within folklore I mean even if you take something which is really well known to children so take the story of cinderella for example and trace that back you know you obviously go back to the uh, french retellings um that the the traditional story that we know now come from but then you know you can go back 2000 years and find that story uh, in an earlier iteration um in so many different cultures uh, and it's it's pretty much impossible to, to trace an origin of most of these stories, isn't it? But that's kind of the fun of it, is, is just seeing how they do all tie together. Mm. Before we go any further, we should probably do a bit of a Mabinogian 101 here for people who are not familiar mm-hmm. um, with this overarching concept of the Mabinogian. Uh, would somebody like to explain exactly what this collection of stories is that we're going to be
1: talking <laughs> about? Matt! Yes.
0: Well,
2: the Mabinogion, the, the 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 reason. So the the reason why I think Eloise and I and this collection of amazing writers are trying to put together a, a children's retelling of the Mabinogion is because essentially these are Britain's oldest prose stories. Um, we know uh, that the the stories were sort of collected somewhere between 1350 and 1410, 1415, in two books that are sort of colloquially known as the White Book and the Red Book. Um, But these stories certainly existed in manuscripts written down as far back as 1250 and are almost certainly part of the oral storytelling tradition of these wonderful islands of ours and go back probably centuries before that. So the, the mere fact that these are... The as old as our stories get when they've been written down, feels to me like they should be collected and retold for children. And I think that, that when Eloise and I were sort of talking about the map, which is the book that we're writing with, with all these other brilliant writers, that that was one of the sort of key things about it, uh, I suppose. Elle?
1: Yeah, I'd say that there are 11 stories um, all ancient as Matt said and all told by different people and we don't know who, who originated these stories we just know they were written down at some point in in Welsh originally um, which might have been to keep Welsh alive because uh, the English were trying to eradicate the language at the time is eradicate the right word? I think Yes, get rid yes. Of. Not forceful <laughs> enough <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, we're in, I, I think, from a personal point of view, I'm really interested in the fact that they are Welsh stories. That and um, the Welsh stories now in uh, contemporary Welsh stories are often overlooked or thought they might be about choirs, as my granddad used to say, which is choirs and miners and. Um, the valleys and people singing which they often are and sometimes they're done brilliantly but also these are the roots of so many amazing stories and so many amazing writers and I think we should be celebrating those 11 stories with 11 different voices as well which is another amazing thing we're doing bringing 11 contemporary brilliant experts at children's writing together to tell those 11 stories in their own way.
3: Are can you? I just can I sorry. just add as well? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. But even though, as as Edouard says, these are Welsh stories, um, and from a Welsh perspective, they're not simply stories about Wales because they span the whole of the British Isles, um, and, and they go to Ireland. And one of them even starts in Rome and travels all across Europe. Um, so yeah, the the characters and the stories get about quite a lot. There's an awful lot of travelling uh, back and forth, but it is all told from that Welsh perspective, which uh, yeah. which I think is quite unique.
0: And that was one of the things that I was just going to pick up on as well, is, is that obviously there are different types of stories within this collection. Um, and there are links, aren't there, between um, what we would now broadly term Arthurian legends, for example, and stories that appear in the Mabinogian. There are romance Stories. Are there other particular themes that we find within the collection? I, I know, Matt, you talked about the fact that uh, you you mentioned the first branch, and there are four branch, distinct branches yeah. to the Mabinoki, aren't there? Yeah. Um, but are there particular themes that uh, occur within the stories?
2: Well, the I mean, as you say, the the the, the stories themselves break down to being the the four branches, um, and th- those uh, those have a sort of loose connection. There is a character who appears in all four. Praderi appears in all four of those stories. And so they, feels like they, yeah, they, there's a, um, a cohesion to those stories. And then there are uh, three romances and four native tales. And as you say, there are also three, three of those stories are also King Arthur appears in those stories. Um, we Which obviously is the first time he appears as well. So that's another reason why these, this, you know, the Mabinogi are so important. I think because of, um, you know, his reach into British sort of cu- culture now. Um, so I think that in terms of the way that they break down, those are that's 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 broadly how how they are. Four branches, four native tales, and four and three um, romances.
1: No, there are, can I add? There's also um, lots of themes of using the landscape and. Um, teaching you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So like moral uh, moral lessons in how you're supposed to behave and what will happen as a result of your behaviour if you do things wrong or if you step outside what you're expected to do, you'll be cursed forever. Or So yeah, they've got lots of um, themes of curses and... Um, yeah I guess that's the end of my sentence i don 't know why I was trying to carry that sentence on <laughs> it 's a
0: perfectly valid sentence um, <laughs> and, and something that we find of course all the time within folk tales and and folk stories, this issue of morality of, of teaching particular lessons. the Victorians were very big on on this on taking. You know, well known stories and then using them to teach a tale. Normally, um, you know, be a good Christian person or horrible things will happen to you or whatever. Um, uh, how are you tackling those themes in a book for children without becoming overly preachy about it?
2: That is a good question.
1: It is a good question. <laughs> I, I think. The
0: th- book doesn't book exist.
1: <laughs> Yeah, the book doesn't actually exist yet.
0: Well, yes,
1: of um, course. So I think what got, we're hoping to do, we, because we're working with children's authors who are specialists in their field, we are hoping, um, I'm looking at Peter and Matt here, we are hoping that those authors will be able to tackle those subjects in a way that will make them uh, accessible and interesting for young people. Um,
2: there, there, one of the, one of the aspects as well about about the book that we're going to be uh, publishing, hopefully, if we get funded, um, mm-hmm. is that there is a word. There's a word limit on each of the stories, so we, we've we've set a two thousand word limit on each of the stories. And what that means is is that this is not going to be a comprehensive. Each each what you what we what we hope for is that the uh, each story will provide. a a flavor of of the of of the story or an aspect of one of the stories because for example the first branch whilst it's one story is actually three stories in one if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and so what it means is that is that in in the um one of the the only writer we approached i shan't say who it is who decided that they didn't have they didn't want to be part of it only because they were too busy uh made the point that they were very, they were they were sort of like how on earth can you do this for kids this book for kids mm-hmm. there is because there's, there's an awful lot of subject matter in the Mabinogion that is uh, not suitable for <laughs> for <laughs>
3: that's uh, <pretty> like it
2: <laughs> those, those are some, the bits that
3: the kids always like best though surely that's
2: true <laughs> so for example there are there are a number of moments of sexual violence in the in the stories uh, which is obviously something that we don't want to put have in our books. But what the word count allows us to do is to is to zone in on a, a particular part of the story, so for, as an example, I wrote um, a story which is on our website, which was based on the first branch, the first story of the first branch, and it meant that I could just ignore or everything else about the rest of that story and sort of zone in on that so I think that that in terms of like bringing the the, the themes of morality to young a young audience, I think that we will be able to We'll be able to tailor it very specifically to a 21st century audience, I think. And to be honest, a lot of the morality provides, and I write funny books for kids, provides moments of enormous humour. I mean, I'm thinking there's a a bit in, in the second branch, which is Branwen's story, where she's married off to the Irish king. Who? Uh, but her brother is not consulted about the decision. And so the brother maims the horses of the Irish king. Um, Branwen's other brother is horrified by this and makes reparation to the Irish king. He's, he says he's sorry and he gives him everything he wants, loads of gold. Um, but when the king gets back to Ireland with Branwen, he decides that it's not enough. And so he then treats Branwen very badly, which set, sets in motion this awful terrible war where virtually everyone is wiped out and there are moments like that I think where you can just say in a sort of quite a modern funny way just calm down mate you know know? you've got your reparation you've got your money you said it's all right You, you don't have to do this sort of thing so I think there's a lot of fun to be had I think anyway I'm really looking forward from my point of view in writing these stories because I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to sort of like play with the morality and play with the storytelling. Sorry, that was a really long rambling answer. Well
1: said, totally agreed.
0: Perfectly, perfectly fine. And you make a very valid point, of course, here, and that is that the book does not yet exist. This is a theoretical book at the moment. In fact, let's be accurate about this. As of the time of recording this interview, 40% of the book exists. Yes, the book that being essentially um, to to bring to publication. Tell us a little bit about how this process came about. So you had the idea of producing a book, which is, in my opinion, a really, really important book that needs to exist mm. for the reasons that you've already cited, which is why we're talking about it on here now. How did you go from... Matt Eloise going, do you know what, this book should be a thing, to having a mechanism to fund it?
1: Well, I didn't do most of the work, Matt, so you might be (laughs) better (laughs) off talking about this as well. Basically, Matt came to me with this idea um, to create this book. I thought it was a fantastic idea. I couldn't actually believe it hadn't been done before. I know that a lot of the Mabinogion stories, or Mabinogi, some people say, Um, have been written very well uh, separately for young people and a lot have been written in the Welsh language. I I don't think, as far as we know, there isn't one that's written in English and Welsh in the same book by different authors. Um, He came to me with the idea. I thought it was a brilliant idea. I jumped on board immediately. um, And then he approached, I believe this is how it happened, Matt, a company called Unbound, Mm -hmm. who helped put together um, crowdfunding packages and it's probably best if I let you take it from there, Matt, because you know how yeah. that process started.
2: Well, funnily enough, I think that um, this, the sort of, the origin story of the MAB, which is what our version is going to be called, involves all three of us, Peter as well, because I um, about eighteen months ago I remembered uh, having the Mab- Mabinogion stories read to me when I was a kid in school in Wales, and I thought, oh, my son's about the sort of age; he's ten, where he might like them because they were full of dragons and magicians and all that sort of stuff. And so I wanted to find a complete version in English and couldn't. And then randomly about maybe about six months later, Peter on Twitter said, Oh, I'm trying to find a copy of the Mabinogion for my son uh, or to read with my kids. Has anybody got any ideas? And so I sort of like was chatting to him about, about that. And it just seemed crazy to me that a version of all eleven stories written in English didn't exist. I thought that was re- such an odd thing that, that that hadn't that hadn't happened. I couldn't quite believe it. Um, and so during lockdown, I got, as Elle said, I got in touch with Eloise. And I got in touch with Peter and some other writers, and um, we thought initially we might try and approach uh, traditional publishers, but it you know lockdown was not a great time for a lot of the the people who might have been able to publish it but also working with unbound who provide this crowd funding platform it meant that we were able to do things that we just wouldn't be able to do with a traditional with a traditional publisher so um, for example uh, by the time this podcast goes out we will have relaunched the map specifically aimed at schools getting involved and we are able to offer packages for schools where they can get their hands on uh lots of copies of the book but also author author visits virtual or author q a sessions downloadable teaching resources all that sort of stuff which we we just a traditional publishers wouldn't have the wouldn't be able to do that but because we're essentially asking people to fund it before we publish it we can we can sort of factor that that in Mm -hmm. um and so that's that was really the sort of origin of it. it it wouldn't it certainly wouldn't have happened without Eloise and without Peter as well, who has been so terrifically supportive throughout throughout it all. Um, so, yeah, that, that really is, the, is the how it how it came about and why we're crowdfunding. And if anybody does want to, to chip in, then unbound.com forward slash books forward slash the hyphen map is the is the URL.
0: And that link, of course, we will put on the website and in the show notes for this episode and on social media, et cetera, et cetera, so that people can go straight through and if they wish to uh, contribute to this funding and receive a nice copy of the book uh, and some other bits and pieces, depending on what level you choose in return. One of
2: the other things, sorry, Mm. um, that I wanted to mention quickly about the crowdfunding, and this is something that I think is really wonderful, is that anybody who um, supports the book buys a copy of the book will get their name in the book. And it feels really perfect that these stories are our stories. They are stories of these islands. They are sort of not forgotten in Wales. People in Wales know these stories, particularly Welsh-speaking people know these stories. But it feels really wonderful that... People have an opportunity to sort of like be part of this this little journey that the Mabinogion is going on. There will be other journeys it takes throughout, you know, the course of, of human <laughs> existence. But but right now, people can can um, buy a copy of the book and have their name in it, so forever they will be connected with this version of the Mabinogion.
0: So let's let's give some examples of how these stories are going to work, then, uh, because you are all writing stories for this collection alongside the other authors and we'll uh talk about those in a second um so give us some examples of how this is going to work and so peter
4: mm-hmm.
0: which story are you working on from the original collection and how are you interpreting
3: it i don't know yet actually um uh, <laughs> because because we've got uh, one one author you know one one writer per story we've all yeah. put forward a list of preferences um and it's sort of Eloise and Matt are going to I don't know, talk, arm um, wrestle, threaten each other. I, I'm not sure how, how they're going ah, right. to decide so, who gets which story, but um, we, we're going to be assigned a story yeah, from from our preference list. So I'm nice. keeping my fingers crossed, putting, putting in a good word for myself here, guys, um, <laughs> for uh, Peridir, Son of Evrog, which is, which is my favourite of the stories um, in the whole book, just because it, it's the story of the son of a knight, um, and his family has been banished you know, after after a terrible war. And he's grown up as a peasant boy in the forest. And uh, basically one day he sees a couple of knights ride past and decides that this is what he wants to do. He's going to go off and he's going to join Arthur's court. And he's a bit try-hard, frankly. He just sort of <laughs> he gets dressed up basically out of the kitchen cupboard in pots and pans for armour. And his mum puts him on an old donkey for a horse. And off he goes with a sort of broom handle for a lance and fights absolutely everybody that he meets and completely destroys them. Um, and then gets to Arthur's court, finds that Arthur is off gallivanting somewhere, and so just decides to fight with his knights instead. And having, you know, caused huge eruptions at court, you know, dusts himself off and goes, Well, I can't hang around here all day. I've got more stuff to go and do. And so he goes off and he fights, you know giants and he meets queens and yeah you know, he goes off on all sorts of adventures um, and just basically he's, he's a teenager who doesn't know when to stop um, <laughs> so the, even Arthur's knights are sort of sitting there looking at him looking at him going off steady on mate that's enough <laughs> um, so yeah I, there, there's an awful lot of heart and character um, in that story so I, I'm hoping for that one but I, I have as I said a, a list of preferences um, so there are, there are other stories I could quite happily Adapt, but uh, that's the one, the I'm sort of King working on in movie? my head. If that's a, if that's any, not that I want to unduly influence you,
2: Matt. <laughs> does is. Doesn't doesn't <laughs> the Fisher King make an appearance in Peredur? Sorry, doesn't the Fisher King make an appearance in Peredur?
4: Ah, uh, uh, yes,
3: I believe so. Well, there is. A, there's a couple of sort of Fisher King esque
2: yeah.
3: characters who crop up here and there. Yeah, really, aren't there? Um, Yeah, yeah but- I, 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 I think Peridure is one of them.
2: Yeah. But that's again that's what we were saying before, isn't it, about how these these that's the lovely thing about these stories is is that there's all these little motifs and these characters, recurring characters and and the idea that Arthur and the Fisher King appear first in this story I think is just really magic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um there are three of you here, but you need more people than that to be able to produce all these stories. So uh, give us some examples of, of um, who else is going to be working on this project with you. Uh,
3: wow. Well, well, sorry, sorry, Matt, go on. No, No, <laughs> Peter, you go for it. But, I was going to say, we have, have former podcast guest,
0: Sophie Anderson, who's contributing the story. Um, yes, so, so, so- Sophie, uh, who um, has a new book out just about now, actually. But yes, who, who uh, we interviewed on here about um, The Girl Who Speaks Bear, um, I know is, is contributing. And, and her style, I think, would be a great fit for this project, definitely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. That's the other nice thing, is that, is that sort of really looking for... Ellen, I was talking about this the other day. Really looking forward to, to sort of letting Peter and Sophie and the rest of them loose on these stories and seeing what happens. is going to be so exciting. But,
0: um, who else have you got on board?
2: Well, we've got, um, apart from Sofa, we've got um, Darren Chetty, who was one of the contributing writers of The Good Immigrant. Uh, we've got Hannah Nissa, who is a, a, a poet based in Cardiff. Uh, we have got Claire Fayers, uh, who most recently won a very prestigious Welsh uh, literature award for her novel Stormhound. Um. Alex Wharton, who is, uh, won the, the Lit Wales Rising Star Award, another poet. Uh, and again, that's going to be a really nice aspect. I mean, I haven't spoken to either Alex or Hannan about this, but I, w- I hope that they'll consider writing in verse uh, mm. their, their stories, which is going to be really exciting. Um, Elle, who have I forgotten?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I was just kind of on my fingers. Um, um, Nicola David, Zilla Bathor who has just written a fantastic book called The Shark Caller.
2: Shark?
1: Yeah. Yeah, which Catherine is Judy soon. Katherine Johnson, who is just an extraordinary writer. Um, oh, Matt's disappeared. Um, <laughs> Nicola Davis, did you say Nicola Davis, who writes a lot about nature and our uh, relationship with the landscape. Um, how many is that? Oh, well,
2: yeah, Nicola's
4: got...
1: <laughs> oh, he's got all their books there. Oh, I've,
2: got, okay. I've got all everyone's books <laughs> they've written. That's been a nice thing. I've been really able to find it. We,
1: we might have missed somebody. No, um,
2: I think,
1: I think that was everybody. everybody.
3: Hang on. Let me just, I'm just um, going to, I'm just going to. Be- Max Lowe is doing the illustrations. We should. Yeah. It.
1: Oh, and of course, translating into Welsh in the same book is Bethan Guanas, who is um, a really well-known Welsh writer.
2: Yes. And what's another thing that's interesting <laughs> about this. Gosh, this is going to be such an interesting podcast. Um, is... Uh, is that Bethan, uh, who's doing the translation, I think I'm right in saying, did the translation of Owl Service. Oh,
3: really? Oh, which, of really? course,
2: is the, is the the book that is based on one of the stories in the Mabinogion about the uh, Blede with the woman made of flowers. And that's another reason I, uh, that I think that why... why uh, a new version is really welcome at the moment, uh, an update, uh, updated version for kids, because I think that I know more about Bladet with, from reading The Owl Service than I did from reading the original, um, the original story. I think that, that these re- a retelling can kind of just really breathe new, interesting life into, into a story. And I think that The Owl Service is a very good example of that.
3: See, I, I, I grew up in Newport, literally over the hill from Caerleon, where Arthur holds court in the Mabinogion tales. And this is in sort of early to mid 80s. The Mabinogion was never mentioned once. We didn't hear any of these stories in school. Yeah. There wasn't a book in the library. Um, and despite the fact that, you know, I grew up immersed in um, folklore and folk tales and myths and legends and things like that, all the tales of Arthur I heard were the standards, you know, Lancelot and Merlin, all of the, all of the so I don't want to call them specifically English, but you know the, the the better known Arthurian tales, and there wasn't a mention of Arthur having come from Wales uh, Mabinogion, I didn't even, even discover it existed until I was 12 or 13 so part of the reason that I was um, asking on Twitter for a, for a complete collection to read to my son um, about six months ago was partly because up until very recently I hadn't actually sat down and read the whole thing through from front to back. I've I, I picked up bits of the stories over the years here and there and again through adaptations and things like that but um, in terms of actually sitting down and reading it all through I never had um, so I, I ended up with uh, this sort of rather nice sleek red copy which is tr- translated by Charlotte Davis uh, who works at Cardiff University um, and that's really really nice and it's got loads of footnotes and appendices and things like that but certainly not something I could sit and read with my, with my kids at mm. bedtime. Um, okay. So yes, yeah, so I think it's really important to get these, these stories out there for for the younger generation.
0: Yes, I agree. Definitely.
2: One of the things I've got as part of my, um, when I make videos or take photos is I've, I've mocked up my own copy of the map like that, but I've actually stuck it onto, I don't know if you can see my copy of mythology of the British, Geoffrey Ashes book. And the thing that I think is interesting in this book is that, uh, the Mabinogion gets a chapter, and Arthur gets about twelve, twelve chapters. <laughs> 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 and I think it's it's really interesting that that how how sort of underused, underserved, not underloved maybe, but um, these these stories are. As you say, I like I go to my son plays rugby on a Saturday, and there are I live in England now, but there are other Welsh dads there who are very well, you know, very sort of like fiercely proud. Welsh Welsh. I, I said to them, I'm, I'm, re- I'm rewriting the Mabinogion. And they were like, what's, what's the Mabinogion? And these are people who went to school, as you say, in South Wales. Uh, they're Welsh speakers, many of them. But, but it's, just, it's just has passed like a generation by. And I think that's something that is really sad because these stories are extraordinarily brilliant, weird, funny, crazy tales.
0: Yeah, I, I think there is still a lot of love for it in in particular quarters. But, I, but um, despite the fact that the origin tales are is probably so mixed within this collection, mm. I think it, it tends to be within those areas where people have a particularly strong fondness for Celtic folklore that the Mabinogion is still is still has that love. I know we did a podcast recording recently with with a dozen or so other folklore based podcasts um, which has just come out uh, one of which was the um, Celtic Myths and Legends podcast and, and um uh, uh, presented for her part of the what's the best folklore ever sort of discussion the Mabinogium. Mm. Um, because there's such a rich blend of stuff within it. So I think, I think there is still a lot of love for it, but um, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that actually within Wales itself, not as much knowledge as, as there used to be. Mm. How is folklore within Wales these days, do you think, as a subject? I mean, if you think about Ireland, for example, Ireland is, is very culturally rich, even now, in its past and, and tradition and, and folklore, and has whole kind of publicly accessible collections and, and big events around, around, you know, traditional Irish customs and, and folklore. How is it within Wales?
1: It's a really interesting question. I think we're very um, we're good at celebrating certain parts of Welsh culture. We wave our daffodils and we and we celebrate Tom Jones and rugby. And there are certain things like um, the Mary Mary Lloyd. I'm not sure if I've pronounced that right. For Halloween, we celebrate s- at certain times of the year. So it seems quite incongruous that the Mabinogion has been forgotten. Um, we all still dress up on Saint David's Day, for example. So there are certain things that we do, and I think we're very culturally. Lock, uh, not locked in, uh, connected to the landscape and connected to old stories. Um, but the Mabinogion, as Peter and um, Matt were saying, completely passed me by at school because we were celebrating other things like dressing up and waving daffodils.
0: And there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it does no. tend to use this kind of um, stereotypical culture, doesn't it? That when then you go across mm. to England or you go across to uh, other areas... And, and people think, okay, so what's, what's, you know, what's Wales all about then? And it is that, isn't it? It's, it's dragons and daffodils and leeks. And,
4: mm.
1: Yeah, I think that's yeah. what we're trying to combat with the Mabinogia. And it's about so much more than that. We've got the oldest British stories. And we should be celebrating all these things that have influenced all these films and books and songs. And all these amazing different things have come from that core material. Um, mm-hmm. I, I We just do, we do. In podcasts.
3: <laughs> we, we do rely very heavily on this, on a few bits of symbolism, most of which I think have their origin in Victorian era, um, and yeah, and bits of more modern pop pop culture, like yeah, you know, like Eloise said, things like Tom Jones and and what have you. Uh, but in terms of the, like the deeper culture and the folklore, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell um, in Cardiff. It might be different elsewhere in the country, further north or further west. But it's do. not it's not part of the the
0: broader culture at all, as far as I can tell, and this is exactly the reason, isn't it? Why, why? Um, certainly, from my point of view, I think this is a very timely project and a really important project for all of those reasons that we've just discussed. And it, and it can do nothing but good for the representation of folklore within Wales as as a, a geographic area, and and for the preservation of these stories through retelling for another generation. So, yeah. It actually is really important and and does need to be supported. So again, if people want to support it, you've already told them where to go and I will provide links for that as well so that they can do so. So let's just finish up by by talking about the timescale of this project. How are you hoping that that is going to pan out?
1: Well, I think we're hoping to get it sponsored and together as soon as possible. <laughs> um, we've got a bit of momentum going. We're really, really keen to get it out there. So the quicker we can get people behind it and get it, for me, I think, get it to young people and in schools and getting, as you said, it's a really important um, thing to celebrate. Um, I, I think the sooner the better, really. So if people can get behind the project, then fantastic. That'd be so great. Let's assume <laughs> that you
0: can reach 100% behind tomorrow okay if, if you reached full yeah. funding, <laughs> if you reached full funding tomorrow, how would the project then work from there to publication
2: We would uh, because well if it let's say it was ninety percent tomorrow because I think that there's there'll be a point before it's funded where we start saying to our writers Wr- start writers start writing <laughs> uh, and uh, um and also the, so it, it, I mean, it, it'll take, I mean, I, I guess it'll probably take about six months from, from full funding to, to being ready to send out to people. It'll, it'll depend on, um, uh, Max Lowe, who's doing the illustrations for it. I mean, I know from, from, uh, my experience of writing books that the illustrating of books is often more, uh, more time consuming than the writing of books. Uh, so it, it, I, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I've got that sort of six month in my head. So if we were to be funded this side of Christmas, mm-hmm. then by the middle of next year, it'll be be, be out. Be, we'll be sending it off to to people around the country.
1: It would be great if it could go into schools for the new school year. So we're at September uh, yeah. 22. Yeah. Um, and then we could change the stereotypes about Wales completely because we'd have the most amazing stories that people could say are the stereotypical stories of Wales. The ones yeah, that yeah, influence yeah. the world, if you like, uh, Game <laughs> of Thrones, Harry Potter, yeah.
3: all of those things. Yeah. And again, the, these yeah, aren't just yeah. the stories for Wales, even though they're stories from Wales originally. They are
2: <laughs> well said, yeah. much
3: British stories. And it would be great if we could get this book into schools all across the country, so the yeah. kids yeah. can see. It. Because because Welsh is is a British language. It used to be spoken all over the island. Um, so if we can get kids to see the stories in English and in Welsh, you know, side by side, and go. Actually, you don't have to live in Wales to be able to learn a bit of Welsh or to speak a bit of Welsh, or to understand and enjoy these stories. It is for everyone.
2: Yeah, well said. Um, that 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 dimension of the books, I think, is is really cool, Peter. Like you're saying, that not only does it, the the story take place in places like uh, Herefordshire, uh, Gloucestershire, Kent, Cornwall, London, you know, there are all these other English places where it takes place but also like I was just reading this morning about one of the characters who they think is based on a character from the Isle of Man and that has, f- f- you know, f- further back is, is a representation of, a, of an old sort of British sea God. Um, and so even though there are, there are places that are mentioned in the Mabinogion that aren't Welsh, also the characters that they're, they're sort of like their history and their, the, the folklore of those characters is definitely British rather than specifically Welsh.
0: Excellent. So it is indeed a project that that is really important across the board, both, both for Welsh culture and also for the representation of Welsh culture and Welsh folklore to other people. Uh, and, of course, the, the preservation um, and continued understanding of what are these really important stories. So I wish you all the best with the project. I will continue to support it personally through the podcast as well um and to and to try and help you to get this project going um and i'm sure we will talk again later on when it's a bit further down the line but in the meantime uh eloise matt and peter thank you all so much for taking the time to come on and talk about the map today the MAB is a culturally very significant project and i hope that some of you are able to support it or share it with others who might like to You'll find links on the Folklore Podcast website for the funding page for getting involved with the Mab. If you hadn't already noticed, the Folklore Podcast Book Club is now up and running on our YouTube channel. As I write this, there are two episodes live and more in production, so please subscribe for free at www.youtube.com slash Folklore Podcast and have a watch. We have lots and I mean lots, of books in for review at the moment, so if you'd like to be a reviewer for future episodes or for the website, please email us and let us know. Just a reminder that the Folklore Podcast only continues because of your generous support. Now This stops us having to spoil the content with meaningless adverts, and helps us to pay for hosting, website fees, and the many hours of content generation and research that go into our projects each month. If you'd like to help us in return for exclusive extra content, then please visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast or alternatively you can make a one-off donation via the website or you can buy tickets for some of our events. If you can't afford to help us in this way, then do please give us good reviews on podcast pages and, more importantly, engage with and share our episodes and content to help us bring in new audiences. Thank you for anything that you can do to help to keep this podcast going. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be talking to Joanne Harris, world-famous author of the book and the film starring Johnny Depp, Chocolat, and many other titles, about her work with folklore and her new book Orphea. I hope you can join me for that. In the meantime, we'll play out today with Sharon Kraus, singing a song about one of the characters from the Mabinogion. This is a track called Bloodwed. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>